Okay, well, we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to um, hopefully, and God willing, finish up our section on the parables, Matthew 13, uh, in this uh, third discourse in Matthew's Gospel. We'll spend a minute getting um, back up to speed in terms of context. I know we covered the, the parable of the weeds explained by our Lord rather hastily, so um, I want to just go over that one more time before we jump into the final three or arguably four parables of this section. And then we'll be off and running. Let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you that you have revealed your Son to us through the preaching of your word. And we especially thank you this time of the year for the glorious incarnation of your Son, that he might bear our sins and be our Savior. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, that the mysteries hidden within your scriptures would be revealed unto us, that we might delight in them delight in you, and be filled with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, the parables play a, or the introduction of the parables play a different role when we compare where they land in Mark to where they land in Matthew. We've seen the ways in which they're parallel in many respects, but here in Matthew 13, we, and if you look at verse 34, we see this nuance that Matthew has, and it becomes all the more important in the latter four or the last four parables in this section. So I do want to highlight that just at the outset. Once more at verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here he's referring to one of the authors of a psalm, so you can see the way in which prophet is used fluidly. Here from Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And again, this is a kind of marvelous statement where you get these self-references within Scripture because it, it opens the window into seeing how the scriptures understand themselves. Namely, you might ask the question, who is the I? I will open my mouth in parables. In Psalm 78, it's the Lord, and here it's the Lord. And even if it, even if you were to say, okay, well, is this the psalmist or the Lord, and um, is this Matthew's idea? It doesn't really matter. You get this idea in the scriptures that Christ is speaking all the way through the Old Testament. That's really the point. So this is where your red letter Bible kind of falls short, because in truth, there would be red letters scattered all throughout your Old Testament as well, where Jesus is speaking. Okay, that tangent aside, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So that utterance of what has been hidden, and we recall earlier in Matthew, similarly in Mark, these parables are referred to as mysteries. And so the mysteries are being opened to us. What is hidden is being revealed to us by Jesus. So that theme of hiddenness, uh, the hidden, um, that's at verse 35. <clears throat> that theme of hiddenness is much more emphasized in Matthew's 
treatment on how to read the parables, how to hear the parables. Okay, um, again, more to come on that. We jump back in then at verse 36 with the explanation of the parable of the weeds. And this would give us opportunity, if nothing else, to look at our Lord's teaching on what we would often call eschatology or the end, the end things. Um, there's micro eschatology, which is the end of each individual person. Okay. So you die. What happens to you when you die? And there's macro eschatology. What is the, what does the close of the age look like and consist of? Okay. So at verse 36, then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Okay, so the whole world, the whole field belongs to the Son of Man. It all belongs to him. Within this world are two kinds of people. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. That's it. And this lineage of the two families, if you will, goes all the way back to Genesis, and especially and particularly Cain and Abel. Do you remember that story where Cain kills Abel? Okay, so you have Abel being the one who pleases God through his faith and sacrifice, and Cain, the one who does not please God through his unbelief and poor sacrifice, okay? And so you see a kind of unbelief and belief, a kind of faithful one and unfaithful one. And from the very start, the unbeliever persecutes the believer, right? Cain kills Abel. If you trace those two lines, you can trace them all the way through the scriptures. All the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New and this is why Jesus, for example, refers to the Pharisees as you brood, you offspring of vipers. He is calling them members of that line. You are offspring of the serpent. Okay. Now, this is another thing that we often miss, even though it's right in front of us. Uh, we just often don't highlight it or think about it. But remember what God says in the garden to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, there's the first. Um, Satan hates the woman. Okay. And so I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed or offspring and your seed or offspring. So in Revelation, you'll have the offspring of the dragon versus the offspring of the woman. Or as Jesus would say, the brood of the viper, the brood of vipers over and against the sons of the kingdom or the sons of the father. Okay. So you've got those two, and then you can see this twofold reality just manifest itself in almost every biblical story. There's any controversy at all or any major disagreement at all. You almost always have this 
uh, frame, and it's always the unbelieving persecuting the believing. Okay. So you can think of, uh, well, like, for example, in the New Testament, you'd have Peter and Judas. They're both disciples. They both fall into great betrayal of the Lord. One is penitent. One is not. Um, one is sorry in the way that Cain's sorry. Um, when Jesus is uh, crucified, there are two Laestes, whether robbers or insurrectionists on either side of him, they both start out railing against him. But as Luke would have it, one of the, um, so as Luke would have it in his narrative, the only thing that Jesus says or is recorded to have said in Luke's narrative is as he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Luke would have us see it through the lens that it's that if there's a word that converts the thief, it's that word that he sees the way Jesus loves and forgives even those who are crucifying him. And he says to the Lord, he rebukes the, the other lay stay and says to the Lord, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So what do you have there? You have two crucified with our lord two under the death sentence just as we are one repents and one does not okay so again this twofold nature all the way through the scriptures the sons of the kingdom versus the sons of the evil one again in this time in this simple little phrase and contrast that jesus is using he's tying us into an extremely deep biblical and historical reality all right whereas the sons of the kingdom are caused by the sowing of the son of man. The sons of the evil one are caused by the sowing of the enemy. And that's revealed to be the devil in the first part of verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. So when we're talking about the close of the age, then we're talking about macro eschatology at the close of the age there is a harvest the reapers are the angels just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so this is the real life earthly thing that happens so it will be at the close of the age the son of the man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom and again here is a place where the ESV translation is permissible, but could be better. So he will send out of his kingdom, according to the ESV, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. But really, rather, it's all causes of scandal, which is almost always the word for apostasy. So all causes that turn men away from the Lord. And all lawbreakers is more, in fact, is exactly the language in John of those practicing or doing or working anomia, lawlessness. So lawbreakers works, but I mean, if I'm, if I'm driving down the freeway and I get going a little fast down the hill, I'm a lawbreaker by definition. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about workers of lawlessness, anomia. 
All right. So then these are gathered by the angels. And then they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Here we have a description of um, hell in the proper sense, defined in Revelation as the lake of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I described that last week as sorrow, of course, obviously. And gnashing of teeth would tend to be, to some degree, anger. uh, But I think here very heavily tainted with the sense of regret. Maybe impotent anger um, and regret. Okay, to contrast that. So that is the fate of the sons of the evil one. To contrast that, then the righteous, the saints, the holy ones, will shine like the sun. Okay, biblically, Christ is described as shining like the sun. In fact, the, uh, the created sun is, we're led by the Psalms um, to see that as a type of Christ, which I think is fantastic and changes the way you perceive Reality, which is what the Bible is especially good at. And that is every time you see a sunset, you're seeing creation itself preach the death of Christ. And every time you see a sunrise, you're seeing creation itself proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. And then every day of your life isn't lived just merely by this world's sun, but rather by the dying and rising of Christ. So it's this sense in which the two worlds, the old cosmos and the new creation are already enmeshed. And what's going to happen is they'll just be drawn out and separated. So then um, the righteous will shine like the sun. Christ being described as the sun, we will shine as Christ because we're little Christ. We're small as sons of the father. He, the largest son of the father. And um, that amplified all the more by the way, verse 43 ends that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Our father being God. Which of course means it's, I mean, this necessitates that you be born of the father, of the heavenly father, that you be born from above. And that's why Jesus says exactly that. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and the... Okay. And then he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so we have a lot of macro eschatology here, the big picture of the separation and the judgment and um, a poetic glimpse to be sure, but nonetheless a real glimpse of what it is for the damned and what it is for the blessed. Let's um, pause there, see if you have any thoughts, reflections. Barry's got one. Okay, I'll jump in here. Uh, The field here, then, is the world, not the church. Correct, yeah. I I missed last week, so maybe I Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave a little explanation there. Sorry. So um, many good, great early church fathers, um, and, of course, Augustine being one of them, in some places, interpreted this as the church. And uh, obviously that that causes some problems because that's not what the text says. 
And if you follow that too closely, it, that, hey, this is the church he's talking about, and you've got weeds in the church, and you've got Christians in the church. Now, we all know that to be the case anyway. I mean, we hope it's not the case. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the case truly, and when you think of Christendom, um, hopefully it's not the case in your own congregation. It's possible that it would be, right? Um, but that reality then, if you read this parable, it would say, don't weed out those who you might think are unbelievers. Um, how would you tell that they're unbelievers? Well, they'd be teaching false doctrine or manif- engaged in manifest impenitent sin or that kind of thing. How do we know that that's not a good read? Because if we tick forward to Matthew 18, which I plan to do if we get through this section, I plan to do tonight. If not, we'll do it next time we meet. But as you go forward to Matthew 18, Jesus teaches quite contrary to that, that those who are within the church are accountable and held accountable to the church. If they don't listen to the individual member, if they don't listen to the two or three others that are brought, if they don't listen to the whole church, Jesus says they ought to be treated like sinners and tax collectors as those outside of the kingdom to be converted, but not to be counted as Christians, not to be communed with. So if the field is the world, then how do we uh, interpret this? No, uh, in, in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. So how do we, what's the application there? Are we not to uh, bother the unbelievers in the world? Uh, I think this is closer to should Christians engage in jihad? That's that's what I think that this is closer to. Should we, uh, when we have a predominance within a culture, or let's just say a village, shall we oust those who will not convert? Um, should we should we potentially even say, hey, what you're doing is an abomination? Repent or die. I think that if you were to ask that question, um, and there are religions like that, of course, Islam's like that. Repent or die. No. Uh, I don't want to repent. Allah's merciful, so I'll ask you one more time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, but I'm not really sure that that's what, what our Lord is after um, necessarily. But I think that that would be like if you really took it to its logical conclusion, certainly a valid point. I mean, there there are, I think, some more subtle uh, kinds of conclusions you can draw from that particular point in the parable. Um, it's not incumbent upon us to fix the world. It's not incumbent upon us to heal the people of the world and make it a better place. Sorry, Michael Jackson. Uh, these things are outside of the scope of what it is to be Christian. And, and I think that then it would tie in even sort of with this idea of like the poor you will always have among you up until the very end, there's going to be famines and disasters in nature and wars and rumors of wars. And the church and Christianity is not tasked with saving the world. So would you say then that as a Christian, we're staying in our lanes? Well, <laughs> it, just, it depends on what you mean by stay in your lane. Well, just basically, you know, come to the line service, be, be a light in the world, you know, 
be salt and light, uh, but it's not our job, like you say, to root up the uh, weed and uh, convert them physically or through um, passionate ways of uh, persuasion. Well, I would say passionate ways are fine. I would say trying to leverage or force somebody into the faith is a no bueno. Yeah. Um, and it's not me that's saying that. It's like, you know, 2,000 years of church history. Yeah. The, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, compelling and urging people to, and exhorting people to become Christian, to recognize the God who's made them. And in many respects, I think we as Christians should be more aggressive. I think we've been too quietistic and too sit back and we concede too much ground. We can see concede the entire frame of like, I've got to pander into your frame and somehow make this palatable or believable. I think a much more attractive way going forward. And by the way, I'm not inventing this. I mean, this is the way the early church dealt with the world when the world was predominantly pagan around it. They just took the high ground right off the bat. How dare you reject the God who made you? You're accountable. No, what you're saying is stupid. It's the wisdom of the world, and the wisdom of the world is stupid to God. So this conclusion that you've got, this neat little network of ideas that you've got that close the door on God is foolishness. It's an abomination. And to, start, and to kind of re-grasp and regain that biblical language, you know, um, I think is good. And so, no, I would say in terms of uh, our approach with the world, in our particular circumstance, uh, what we're, uh, we collectively as a church are experiencing is at one, uh, at one point in time in all of our lives, we could live as Christians fairly integrated and fairly comfortable in this culture and society. But that is increasingly changing. And instead of cowering or being more passive or more quietistic, I would, and I know that's not what you're saying, but I would urge, no, let's take a page from the notebook of the early church fathers and start to double down and regain the frame and just act uh, instead of trying to like sort of exist in this shared culture of, okay, we're all trying to play by the same rules. Let's understand Christianity in this frame. Just grab the whole frame and say, absolutely not. God's the one who made you. Your own heart condemns you. A fool says there is no God. You believe this foolishness? What do you make of your own conscience? Yeah, that, I, know, I, really, that's the thing. I, I find that very freeing, that taking the high ground, that is, our job is not to try to fix the corruption of the political system or the, you know, the business system, whatever it is, but to focus on the word that we are going to by our lives and our word, not be afraid to speak the truth to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we can't fix the corruption of people. Right. It's, right, uh, and I think we get pretty fixated on that. Like politics and our election just came up, and I think it's pretty. It diverts all of our attention. Yeah, and that's where a lot of the uh, conflict comes anyway. So yeah, we get sucked into that. It, just, it takes us away from our focus, and that is the idea. It's to me that's very free. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think we can also just think very locally. And so, and this is kind of also a vocational way of thinking where it's like, engage your family, engage your friends, engage, engage the people who God has already put around you. You don't need to go 
questing to the ends of the earth to find somebody to tell Jesus about, chances are they're all around you. And yeah, I mean, let's continue to educate ourselves. Let's continue to vote. Let's continue to try to push for what's right and just in whatever locale uh, or local um, area or situation which we find ourselves. But the scope of Christianity isn't to go out and fix the whole world. I was just going to add, I'm operated under the, under the verse that says, be prepared to give a reason. Mm-hmm. But I don't find many people asking me, uh, <laughs> what, you know, why do you have faith? Mm-hmm. And uh, where did it come from? You know, I, I don't find that hunger. That's, yeah. So uh, I was just reading, a, it was a, a, I forget his name, but I mean, this old ancient movie book about this, uh, this preacher is basically saying that we need to be, this is a couple hundred years ago, we need to be less timid and rebuke our neighbors for not taking their children to church and reading. Yeah, and sure. Just sure. Confront them. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and and well, it's true. Today. It's true. Yeah. And that would make a fist fight. Yeah, well, I mean, your mileage may vary. Pick somebody smaller than you. (laughs) But I I think that that's, I I mean, whether you would maybe express yourself in exactly that way is going to depend on your personality and relationship and everything else. I mean, use your wisdom here. But uh, but what I really like about that is it's true. And in fact, I mean, this is something we as Lutherans are rediscovering about our own history and heritage. This is the way we ought to speak to our civil rulers. You are beholden and accountable to God. God put you in this office to execute it in a godly manner. Do you not know what that is? Would you like a refresher? (laughs) But that is precisely the role of the church in general and of pastors in specific is to rebuke those in the left-hand kingdom when they fail to do their God-given tasks, just as they would rebuke me if I am somehow a foul of the law. There's no problem. They're going to come in and tell me what's what and, you know, which cell to sit in. So, you know, in a rightly ordered society, that's all well and good. But the church has completely acquiesced that and completely said, oh, we don't dabble in in politics. It's not dabbling in politics to tell your ruler, whether he's a Democrat or a Republican, start doing your job or you're going to face eternal consequences. Right? I mean, that's that is precisely what we ought to do. And by the way, that's I mean. This idea, too, of martyrdom has gotten so narrowed, like, unless you're telling people that moment that Jesus loves them, uh, you're not a martyr. Well, John the Baptist was martyred for telling a, a ruler, Herod, no, you can't have your brother's wife. I wasn't telling him, like, hey, you got to, like, repent and believe in Jesus. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. That's gross. That's sinful. So, you know, when you look at the uh, the Old Testament martyrs and the New Testament martyrs as well, um, most of it doesn't have to do with, hey, do you accept Yahweh as your Savior? <laughs> that is not why Isaiah got sawn in half, okay? Um, it is, uh, you, you are telling people who are doing wicked things that what you're doing is wicked and God sees. That's what gets you killed. <laughs> and compared to that passage in the reading, he uh, he did say that he, you know, we should be we should be you know the high ground. We should be bold and be able to rebuke our neighbor if needed. 
where we have that um, influence, right? You no. basically point out where we have the relationship. Yeah, yeah. You can't just walk it. Good question, Barry, and open us up to a lot of discussion. Any, anyone else want to uh, comment on on the theme we've been addressing, or anything else from this explanation of the weeds? All right, so off we go then into the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of the heavens is like uh, thesoro, where we get thesaurus from, treasury. It's like <coughs> treasure. Hidden, and it's the exact same word uh, that, that we saw back in verse 35. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world here. The treasure is hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, let's pause and take that in. All right, who do you think the man is? Okay, Christ is a valid answer. It is not the majority answer in the history of the church. Um, It is a valid answer, and I've certainly preached it that way, and I find nothing wrong whatsoever with seeing the man as Christ. Let's read it if the man is Christ. He finds a treasure hidden in a field. Uh, What's the field then? Or what's the treasure? Either way, hand in hand. The saved, the believer. Exactly. Yeah, it it would have to be. And then the field would be the world. So he looks out into the world. He finds um, those who are his elect. Okay. Now, does he just buy the treasure or buy the little chunk of land? No, that would be that would be kind of the Calvinistic read here, a limited atonement. No, he buys the entire field. Okay. So the entire field is bought and paid for. That would be the universal or objective atonement. The whole field is bought. We would we might add with Peter, not with gold or silver, but with his own holy precious blood, right? And innocent suffering and death, as our catechism states. Okay. And then interesting, because if this is the man who finds it and covers it up, then his believers are, in a sense, they remain hidden, don't they? His church, this great treasure, remains hidden within the earth. He knows where it is. Nobody else knows where it is. So you have a, a hidden church here. Now, what's his attitude when he goes to buy? Joy. So if buying is done not with gold or silver, but with his own precious blood, he is going to the cross in joy. And that's where we can really capitalize on, the, on this biblical idea that joy is deeper 
that unhappiness or physical or spiritual or psychological suffering, joy is something that goes to the deepest level. One can be joyful under in the Lord under all circumstances, even if you're going to the cross to bear the sins of the world and the wrath of the Father. So then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The whole world is bought. The treasure is what he has in view. What do you think he does when he once he buys the field? Do you think he leaves it buried there? No. Not for long. No. <laughs> Pretty soon he's going to go grab that treasure out, isn't he? And that's what he's going to do with us. Now, um, interesting, too, that the treasure is buried, which is precisely where we would put the dead, and is going to be dug up, resurrected, resurrected by the Lord on the last day when he returns. I don't see the rapture. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where's the rapture here? I don't see it either. Okay. Okay. I think some covert have. Someone is going to grab my body and say, Come here, come here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I raised it and, and I am here. So I think that was the treasure I found. Yeah. Seeing it in a group like this. Yeah, yeah. The right bound, you know, by Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bef- let's, let's get on to that. But before we pivot and change the identity of the man, any other reflections on if we see the man as Christ? Well, it could just be every man or any man who basically going along his life, not really having, you know, anything special going on. And all of a sudden, he comes across an understanding about what his life should be. And he sees that this is worth more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And he basically gives up everything that he has and ded- dedicates his life to doing that. Okay. For example, you know, like Bonhoeffer. Okay. You know, like, you know, he, he gave his life to the church and he, and, uh, he wound up losing it and becoming, you know, who he was and a great saint. But in other words, just, I mean, you, you buy the whole field. Okay. You know, okay. You, you just you just give up everything for that one spirituality that you think is the most important thing that you've ever found. Okay. So let's uh yeah, let's flip it then. If the identity of the man is not Jesus, then um it would be the disciple. And this would be instructive to the one who's reading. Um, or at least the seeker, I mean, the one who's reading and or hearing Matthew's gospel, right? So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, okay, which a man found, that would be now you, the seeker, you, the individual, you, the disciple, and this treasure that you found hidden in a field, we might say would be the gospel, of which, of course, Christ is the centerpiece. So the man finds it. Now, the fact that he covers it up here would just be part of the story. I mean, that's what you would do in real life. It wouldn't necessarily be like you, you know, try to hide the gospel or something. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So then, and and again, this is historically the dominant read, 
or the most frequent read, that's what I mean, um, that this is then sort of the cost of discipleship. Okay? You're willing to sell and give up everything you have. Now, there's a, we'd have to, we'd have to go to um, where Jesus speaks of the rich entering the kingdom of God and the eye of the, the camel going through the eye of the needle and all of that to get the fuller treatment of this. Okay. But there is a concept here um, and elsewhere in the New Testament of, of a kind of evangelical poverty. It's what Luther means also when he says, uh, we are all beggars. The idea isn't that you like necessarily have to go cash out of everything and sleep naked under a bridge, because that's really what it would mean to sell everything. Um, I don't know, though. Where does it stop? Maybe you've got to go donate your blood platelets, too, before you've sold everything. And Who knows? You see what I'm saying? So at what point in time do you get to keep something? And the the whole point would be, well, you can keep what the Lord gives you. It's a stewardship. But in that very point, you recognize that of yourself, you own nothing. I'm a steward of all the things that God has given me. I don't actually own them myself. That's, the, that's probably the root of this idea of sort of the evangelical poverty. Everything I have, I have from the Lord. I have nothing of my own. I'm a steward. I'm a beggar. I open, he opens his hand and satisfies my needs. And so, you know, in that sense, what do you possess? In the gospel sense, what do you possess? Nothing. Okay, so that would be then probably the way in which this thread he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's that you just realize every, nothing else. I'm willing to trade in everything else for this, and in receiving this, nothing else. Everything else becomes penultimate. Everything else becomes penult. All right. So again, as I said, and um, that that's probably my take or read on. Um, if the man is the disciple, uh, what other sorts of things do you see there um, in the text? Anything that I didn't? Uh, Gordon, you got your hand up. Yeah, one of the things that has bothered me about this parable since I was a child, you know, and probably first heard it. Um, in my mind, the person, whether it's Christ or us, um, is stealing the treasure from the rightful owner of the field originally. Mm-hmm. Um, that was always my take, you know, and, and I assumed it was us, you know, and he is, you know, he isn't, he doesn't find the treasure and then turn it over to the owner of the field, which would be the honest thing to do in, in my opinion, but. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily culturally. So if the owner of the field knew it was there, why wouldn't he sell the field and go get it? So the owner of the field doesn't know it's there. Uh, this was this was a common practice uh, for of all kinds of different people for all kinds of different reasons why they bury something in the field. We've had it so easy here; we don't have any experience in this. Um, but at times in the in the world wars, people would bury things because they were on their way out, and there was nowhere, else, and they were hoping one day to return and they'd be able to find it. To whom does that treasure belong? Well, good luck tracking them down. And that's really the context of this. Uh, who knows who buried it or why? It's fair game. That's that's the bottom line. And and again, you know, Jesus uses these kinds of things uh, in his parables anyway, where you go, okay, well, what are the ethics of that actual historical event? It doesn't matter. I mean, that's kind of like exercise and missing the point. Um, a little bit that way with the dishonest manager, when we'll see that, the, who's shrewd and, you know, does these things. You go, now, why would Jesus ever tell this story about this criminal? 
It's like, okay, we're kind of missing the point. What's the, what's the one point in that parable that Jesus intends to draw out? Okay. Uh, namely, that he used mammon in order to procure for himself friends that would welcome into him into their dwellings. And Jesus leverages that to say, if only those in the kingdom of heaven would use their physical possessions and leverage them in order to make eternal friends who will welcome them into eternal dwellings. So it's ultimately a treatment on Christian attitude toward money. And the circumstances of the story that Jesus tells really aren't important beyond that one point. Okay. Speaking of a man, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I get, I mean, that makes sense to me that this person is focused on, you know, obviously the point of playing the field is to get to you know, have the treasure. But what is the feeling? Okay. I get the treasure, I get, you know, the motivation. What then would you feel? Okay, yeah. So, so it would just be the, it would be the whole thing. All right, let me try to let me try to do a little more justice to it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden. All right, go back to verse uh, thirty-five. I will utter what has been hidden. So, the treasure is the word of the Lord hidden in the world. Okay, when you when you buy the field, that would almost be like I'm going to buy everything that comes up with. I'm going to come everything. I'm going to buy everything that comes along with that treasure. Okay, that might be um, everything from the weirdos that sit in the pews next to you to uh, the persecution and alienation that happens to you culturally, um, this pain and suffering that you're going to maybe. uh, So those would be those would be ways in which a preacher would develop that theme of you're going to buy the whole field to get the treasure. Now, already, though, I think that these are sermonic points. The, the whole point being like, you can't go out and buy, let's say the treasure is, you know, I don't know, 12 inches by 12 inches. You can't go out and say, I want these particular coordinates. <laughs> I want to buy this foot and that's it. Okay. You got to say, Hey, I want the whole field. Otherwise you're going to get suspicious. Hey, what, what's at those coordinates? <laughs> Maybe I'll go take a look at myself, you know? Okay. So really the whole point uh, isn't, isn't, you know, again, if you're viewing it in the angle of the disciple, we don't have to make a big deal of the field because the field's incidental to the story. It's just what you would actually buy and do if you found the parable. So the real sacrifice comes in the selling of all you have for this leap into this treasure. Um, but yeah, sermonically, no doubt about it. You get like the field is all the bummers about being a Christian or something like that. Yeah. I was wondering if, since the, the pearl, the treasure is, um, I mean, it's not, it's not treasure. It's uh, not money. It's not monetary. And so what he's selling may not be monetary either. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. on this is, is basically, like you said, you're buying everything. You're, you're buying, you're going all in. Because you found, you, you you're like somebody who's been going through life, looking, trying different things. Everybody has a vision of some sort. Everyone has their viewpoint. But some people are more like they tend to be more curious or something. It's a mystery. It's mm-hmm. a fascinating question. This is a guy that keeps looking and looking, and then he finds it. It's like now I found it. And then to sell everything is to just you have to give up 
all that other stuff, like you can't keep whatever they're doing, like going to the fortune tower or, you know, the talismans or that other God, you know, and today it can be a lot of things. I, mean, I, I, I was thinking about something like this myself, like getting rid of the clutter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's not really valuable. It's actually like, but it has some kind of meaning. It's like, wow, that really has a hold. It's kind of, I think about these things like, why does that have a hold on? Mm-hmm. That's kind mm-hmm. of interesting. You know, it, it tells me something about myself. So maybe that's it. He, he's just saying, you know what? I, and he keeps it quiet because otherwise everybody's going to say, you're a total nut job. He has to do the complete flip around and go all in. Mm-hmm. And then he's come through on the other side and people are trying to say, no, 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 don't give up. All of these been good to you. But sure. Sure. So that would be another aspect, I mean, that you're highlighting of as a disciples reading this, it would also be a refresher. Hey, this is who you want to be. You don't want to be a half, you don't want to be a halfway Christian. That's, that's sort of like inimical to the nature of Christianity. You want to be all in. And then you see a kind of perpetual value of this reading, right? Because it's like, we all go through these stages, like, Hey, I'm all about it. I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm reading my theology books or devotional books or, you know, and then all of a sudden we're cold and maybe you hear this and you're reminded of that treasure and you're called back to sort of the every disciple a zealot, uh, you know, approach. Okay. And so in that sense, it functions as a continual call to repentance and renewal. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt that that's a possibility too. The other thing is though, Gordon made the thing that's, he, the guy was kind of stealing the treasure, but he, it does, in the story, it doesn't say anything. The guy that owned the land may even know of the treasure in the field, but it isn't a treasure to him. Mm. Yeah, there's so, another, there's another so, possibility. Because that's not what the story said. So Jordan is assuming that the guy uh, also views it as a treasure. Yeah, he may think it's. You want this piece of junk? Have it. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, let's take a look at the pearl because the pearl runs parallel to this. And man's trash is another man's treasure. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. It was the football signed by the Colorado Buffaloes team. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, um, yeah, as I said, the pearl runs the same way, and so do the two major ways of reading it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine margaritas. That's what the, that's what the word actually is. <laughs> so, yeah, this is all the women in the congregation's favorite verse. The... So, yeah, he's, okay, now in this case, um, we do see a slight difference because the man finds the treasure, but, you know, we don't, we don't get explicitly the sense that he's some sort of treasure hunter. Um, he doesn't have his, you know, uh, metal detecting device out running around people's field. But here, this is a merchant in search of fine pearls or margaritas, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
All right. So now if the man here is, or the merchant here is Christ, Christ is in search of fine pearls. What does that mean? That's a little weak. Um, but we have to let that stand. Who on finding one pearl of great value, again, we would assume that this is the church, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We're just reading it right now with Christ at the center. (laughs) Exactly right. That's why when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. Right? He was purchasing the margarita. Yeah. Yeah. That would not work as a sermon, I don't think. <laughs> Depends on where you're preaching. Well, the Lord did go to drinking parties, and he was accused of being a wine bibber. So you never know. I, something tells me he had a sense of humor and enjoyed wine. There's that. There's that slight tongue-in-cheek inference that when they're at the wedding of Cana, it could be that it was his disciples who caused them to run out of wine. Remember. <laughs> That's why Mary makes it his problem. You and the boys have consumed all the wine. (laughs) And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) 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 Uh, Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, there's, yeah. It's it's, it's only nine in the morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Okay, so we have a we have a little harder time, or maybe I should put it. We that's not a harder time. We just get less mileage than we previously did in seeing Jesus as the man who discovers the treasure. We get tend to get more mileage out of that than Jesus as the merchant searching for fine pearls. The main point's still the same. Mm-hmm. But um, it just doesn't seem to strike with as much multifaceted impact. Now, if we put the Christian or the disciple or just the human being here, um, now we are the merchant in search of fine pearls. That is, you know, why are we looking for pearls? Because that's our business. And who on finding one pearl of great value, namely the gospel, Christ, went and sold all that he had and bought it, that, you know, and I and really in truth, that's why the vast majority of church fathers over the centuries read the parable of the hidden treasure the way they do. Because when you line these two parables up together, it might seem most compelling to see the disciple or the human being as the center of these. But again, uh, not impossible and not wrong to see Christ at the center of these either. Um, where else do we see, uh, where do we see this intentional duality? And th- that's probably ultimately like, if you want to know, like, okay, well, Rody, where do you sit? I think it's both. And here's why I think it's both. Cause I think Jesus does this all the time. Uh, remember the Good Samaritan? She tells the good, the, t- the story of the Good Samaritan. And we all recognize that it's completely Christ, you know, who's, gone to this man that everybody else passes over and he pays the price and he puts the, you know, he puts the man on his own donkey, uh, heals his wounds with wine and oil, um, pays the price to the innkeeper, the church. I mean, it's clearly Christ, but at the end, what does he say? You go and do likewise. Okay. That is to say, I am the good Samaritan. You 
also be the good Samaritan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Join, effectively what he's saying is, join me in this way of being, right? That's wonderful. I am your savior. That's sort of take one. You're the dude beaten up and left on the side of the road for dead. I'm the one who comes and saves you. Now I'm inviting you to be as I am unto others. Okay, so who's this great, who's the good Samaritan? Yes, it's Christ and the Christian. That's ultimately the tale. And I think that that's probably the case here. Who is the man who finds the hidden treasure? Who is the merchant who finds the pearl of great value? It's both Christ and the disciple. It's both. That's my take. Okay, parable of the net. Oh, you know, and I should point out, I should point out, um, the pearl's hiding, isn't it? He's searching through all the fine pearls. He's got to find the one. It's, you know, it's hiding. He's got to search. And the other guy, too, is, um, you know, he's, he's found this thing out in the middle of the field. So it's hidden there explicitly in verse 45 and 46, implicitly. But it just continues that theme of what is hidden is revealed or found. Okay. I also just want to take back to that, that first parable of the death, where we were having a discussion of what is the world, what is the world, what are we supposed to be doing? <clears throat> I love that story of the dictionary, and that's mm-hmm. what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I think of that, I don't know where exactly that verse that says, What does the Lord require you to do justly, to um, love mercy, and to walk humbly? Mm-hmm. To me, that sort of capitalizes. Good Samaritan, right? Yeah, there you go. Loving mercy, walking hungry, and all yeah. that is in there. Yeah. To me, that's, that's what our role is. To me, it's, a, it's just that thing that's inspiring. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's the why of Jesus forgiving us and healing us that we may be as he is in the world. And that's. I mean, that's just the treasure and gift and honor that keeps on giving. And it's just, it's, it's ontological. Be as I am now. And it's incredibly, you know, that's the whole thing. Okay, so the parable of the net. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So that's the indiscriminate gathering. Uh, when you're fishing with a net, you don't get to choose what you're fishing for, you know, like a maybe like an angler would with his different lures of flies. Okay. So it's an indiscriminate gathering. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers. And the good here would be the edible, not the ones they thought were attractive looking or something. Okay. The good or the edible. And they put them in containers, but they threw away the bad. And I, I've been around enough fishermen to know you don't throw them back into the ocean. Why? Or back into the sea in this case. Why? You don't want them to keep repopulating and regrowing. And uh, went fishing when, when I was real young with uh, a guy in our congregation in Tacoma, Washington. We went out fishing for um, salmon in the Puget Sound. And all we caught were sharks. But every shark he would club over the head and throw back in. I remember being scandalized by this as a kid. But it's like, if you don't do that, they will just overtake the entire population. And you'll just be catching more and more sharks into perpetuity. So um, same thing. That's why they're tossed out. They're not tossed back. They're put to death. So the bad are thrown away. All right. Jesus gives us the explanation here, even though there's not a big to do about it in the narrative. 
So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. And it is, it is almost certainly the case that when they're tossing the fish, they're tossing them into a big fire so that they cook off and don't just sit on the shore and rot and gross everybody out with the smell. Okay. So we have the kind of historical circumstances here. So, um, you know, the net being thrown into the sea, gathering a fish of every kind. Um, that's most typically uh, thought to be the gospel. The gospel's the net that says, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And that gospel being, again, indiscriminate. And that's the way uh, the sower is too. Remember, the sower isn't like, okay, where's the good soil there, right? Um, the, the, this fisherman isn't like, okay, where are the edible fish? There. It's for everyone. It's for all. It's indiscriminate in its reach. The seed goes everywhere. The net goes everywhere. It gathers fish of every kind. It's indiscriminate. Um, now, some have wanted to see this gathering in. Since this is the gospel, then this ingathering is the church. Those fish that are excluded would be outside of the church. Those fish that are gathered in by the gospel have to then be separated into the good and bad, the believers and the unbelievers. That's a frequent interpretation one finds of this. I think that might be a little overwrought, but if somebody preached it, I'm going to, you know, listen, I'm not going to reject it. Uh, otherwise, it would simply be then a, yet another sort of parallel. And you can see the parallel in the explanation with the parable of the weeds, that this is rather gathering all the fish into the net, and then at the end, separating um, the two out. The angels come, they separate the evil from the righteous. The evil are thrown into the fire, the fiery furnace again. And um, in that place, there will be weeping of gnashing of teeth repeated. Okay, now just take a look at 51. Have you understood all these things? So that would signal then that Jesus is done preaching. What did Jesus forget to do? And with the gospel. <laughs> I guess you don't have to. Uh, Jesus literally ends with the threat of fire. Um, I simply point that out because I, I hold, I hope you hold it too, that Jesus is the greatest preacher to have ever lived. And he breaks all of our rules all the time. It's delightful. Okay, so he who desires all men to be saved at least on this occasion, leaves ringing in their ears the warning of being a bad fish and being thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, there's, there's kind of a fun take here. Uh, I don't know of any church father that put it exactly in these terms, but when you're, um, when you're fishing, you're on a boat or you're on dry land, and the whole goal is to get fish out of the wet and onto the dry, Right. And Jesus says to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. And there it's all reversed. The goal is to get them off of the dry and into the wet, the waters of holy baptism. And on this, um, many church fathers capitalized, but Tertullian especially like to talk about how we're the little fishes of Christ. And don't get out of the water, little fishes. You've been fished from off the land into the water. And don't get out of the water. And uh, then many plays on, uh, well, so 
this is one of the places where the Christian fish comes from. Okay, you've probably heard this idea of when the Christians were persecuted, one would draw the one sea and the other would draw the other sea, and that formed the fish. Uh, where does that come from? And that's a play on Jesus and Ichthus, Ichthus being fish and Jesus. And so Jesus being the great fish and Ichthus, uh, where the fish drug off the land into the waters of holy baptism to remain. So, you know, I'm just playing with those themes because that's a tangent that often gets pivoted to in this parable, um, even though it is a little alien to it. Because here, very clearly, it's the traditional pulling the fish up on shore, the good and the bad separated, um, the evil from the righteous. We might note here the emphasis on ontology, that it's not behavioral per se here. He doesn't say that, okay, well, they're bad fish because they look bad or act bad um, or do bad. They're bad fish because of their very selves, they're inedible or edible. So that's the ontology. We see that repeat with the uh, wise and foolish virgins. They either have oil or don't have oil as a consequence of their being wise or morons, to be literal with the text. Um, Likewise, the sheep and the goats. Even when we do have an angle on the sheep and the goats works, some have good, that namely the sheep, the goats have only bad. Okay, but what matters is they're separated on the basis of their ontology from the very start. The sheep to his right, the goats to his left. Okay, So we note these themes with Jesus, with the ontology and the behavior and where he emphasizes one over the other. Um, they go together, but here would be ontology as opposed to behavior. Um, all of these parables we've read. Mm-hmm. As the kingdom of God is gathering good, mm-hmm. bad, but they'll be separated out. Yes. Again, but it's, it's gathering good together. Wonderful yeah. summary. Yeah. Wonderful summary. So why do the wicked prosper? Well, I don't know, but God will sort them out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that too just bespeaks to the good news of the end of evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, the, ju- the judgment of the world is good news. Uh, God is going to finally wash it all away. And that doesn't include us because he's already washed us clean in the waters of holy baptism. That's the point. Okay. It says a couple of times about the end of the age. Yeah. And the implication is that, is that the, the final. When Christ's return. God makes judgment all the time. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, that there, there is a uh, the micro eschatology of um, you know dying and facing a judgment where you go to heaven or hell as waiting rooms, right? Um, but this has in view clearly the end of the age, the uh, return of Christ. I see we're we're five minutes over. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Next uh, next time we get together, we're going to take a little hiatus, obviously, for the next couple of weeks. Um, we'll send out via email the next time we get together. It'll be that second Monday in uh, January. Let's um, go over new and old treasures. That'll be verse 51 uh, through 52. And that'll be a nice way of uh, looking at, looking back at these parables one final time with a lens um, specific to the first disciples And then what we'll do is we're going to move on to Matthew 18, and we're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep within its context in Matthew 18, which, of course, is um, the 
that should be the fourth discourse in Matthew's gospel. And then what my plan is, is to flip over to Luke, where he does the parable of the lost sheep. And let's see how they're slightly different. The point being that even though you have an identical parable, they're functioning slightly differently according to the gospel context or the gospel writer's um, desire or point he's going to make. All right, so it should be fun. We should have a lot of interesting things to consider and talk about in the weeks to come. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us, you guys, online. Really appreciate it, as always. Merry Christmas. Happy Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.